Hello and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we are your co-hosts. So today, I'm actually going to be covering a plant that was requested by mm -hmm. our good friend of the podcast, Bridget. I'm talking about orchids. And in the spirit of orchids, of course, from the herb side, like the foodie plant side, I have to talk about vanilla. Like what else comes from orchids that we eat all the time? Uh, and since we're going to be a little homey today, I'm also covering Hestia, which is like one of those deities that I'm like, how are we a year and a half in and like Hestia is just coming up? I, right. And that's kind of how I thought there's, because there's another one. Actually, we can do this at the top. We can make this part of the pod. Like yeah. we're, we're vulnerable. We're open. We love you guys. So uh, I was talking a little bit about mosaics in my segment, which this week I'm getting real hearty with it. I'm talking about house gods. And so I'm going to be talking a lot about Vesta, who is the Roman version of Hestia. Mm. Well, you know, and I'd love your take on this. Some people speculate that Virgo is more, even though it's like just a space, some people say that virgin, the virgin, the Vestal virgins, Vesta seems to be more the natural ruler of Virgo as opposed to Mercury, which I think is just like an interesting theory. I, I do love that. I do love that. But yes, we're talking about Vesta, but we were talking about, I was, I was talking a little bit about mosaics and we haven't done an episode with Priapus, I don't think. Oh, no, I don't think so. Just, uh, you know, big boner God. God, add that to the list. I, yeah. And like, you know, well, find, find some herb that's an aphrodisiac. That's an episode right there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I do love Nick's brilliant idea to like at the top of the pod Talk about when we felt the most magical. Because y'all, like, we're out here. We were talking about it before the podcast started. Shit is hard right now. Like, inflation is kicking us all in the fucking crotch. Oh, There's yeah. war. Things are feeling very topsy-turvy. So it is important, I think, to, like, find those moments <laughs> of oh, magic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Nick, when did you feel the most magical in the last week? Well, this week, I wanted to talk about... It's spring. So the equinox was Sunday, Sunday, yep. Sunday. <laughs> and usually, so here in Austin, Texas, we have this wonderful, wonderful little tree that's everywhere called Texas Mountain Laurel. And it has these flowers that hang down. They look a little bit like dark purple wisteria, or I even think they kind of look like little bunches of grapes mm. hanging, hanging down from the tree. Like that's the shape. That's, that. that's the shape of the flowers. Usually, usually they blossom uh, in late February. They start blossoming in late February. But this year, it was pretty much like right here on the, the equinox. So shout out to the mountain laurel. But when I felt the most magical this week was I was walking, I was walking to work and I didn't even realize, I didn't even realize first mountain laurel experience of the year. Because the thing is, is that they make the whole block smell like it's such a distinct smell it's so nice um it's kind of to me like like great bubble gum but in a good and natural way like if yeah that... it's a very like specific scent but, but it is good it's good but to me that smell is like spring is here and then literally I was like oh my god so I'm walking home I'm walking home 
blue bonnets. I'm like, mm. and then the next morning I'm like, oh my God, red buds. Like literally everything has come to life within like four days. So I would say like, it's, it's, it's the moment of smelling the first mountain laurel of the year because it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Um, but also just like everything is kind of, all of the spring flowers are out right now and it happened this week. So like that happening mm. in general, in general, in general. I love and that. I, I, it's my favorite. I love that. Well, yeah. what, about, what about you? What about you? <sighs> uh, this has been a rough week, y'all. I'm not going to lie. Work has been hard. Um, but I, so last week, like getting ready for Ostara, I actually like started some vegetable seeds because I was, of course, by August of last year, I was like, I'm never fucking growing tomatoes again. If I see like one more blighted fucking blossom or like blossom drop or like those stupid horned worms, like anyone who grows vegetables knows that by August, you're ready to just like light half your garden on fire. But it's springtime. So I was like, fuck it. So I have decided this year that I'm going to focus on having like fewer plants and just trying to be like very, very regimented with how I care for them as far as like my food plants. So I planted some seeds in the last week. And like, when I tell you these bitches like popped off so fast, it seemed unreal. I was like, it, it made me feel more like a plant witch than I have in a long time because I was like, how are y'all already like two inches tall and I planted you two days ago? Like, I kid you not, I've never seen seedlings like go off like this. So it's just been really nice because it has been very difficult for me in the past week to kind of like slow down and connect. But like that was one little thing I did and just like having to tend to them and take care of them is really important time for me to like take a moment in the morning but just like seeing them grow so fast honestly I was just like oh my god I am a witch look at them go it's it's so it, it really is empowering but also I would say it's finally fucking airy season and life is in the air it is it is and I'm so excited I'm so excited and actually you know speaking of uh we're about to be talking about orchids and for some reason orchids always make me think of like when you're done with your spring cleaning and you go get yourself flowers because that's yeah. what I because that's what I always do uh I love it well since today is like all about the home which feels so right for the spring right like spring cleaning getting your house in order getting like dusting it out opening up the windows like vanilla right like what herb feels more like home than vanilla it's like homemade baked goods mm. delicious scents it's oh, like yeah. so sweet and it's also like comforting because like to me you can get all kind of crazy with like different flavors and I love being adventurous but like there's nothing like a good like vanilla ice cream or like oh. good vanilla like sugar cookies like sometimes that's like vanilla can just be so comforting it, it absolutely is comforting and shout out I have to shout out H-E-B 1901 vanilla yes because so good. I literally I don't know why it's the best vanilla ice cream out there um I think it's, I, maybe it's because they use actual vanilla beans. Like, I think that's what the 1901 is supposed to mean. 
I think so, yeah. Um, but what wow, wow, we wow. So good as an affogato for oh those of God. you who for those of you oh. who are into coffee, put it and you are not aware. I mean, people some people don't know. Some people don't know. Pour uh, some espresso uh, over that ice pour cream. Some, pour some espresso over that ice cream. That is a delicious treat. You're uh, welcome if you didn't know you could do that. If you didn't know you could do that. <laughs> so, like, who doesn't love, like, homemade baked goods, vanilla and everything? Smelling like vanilla reminds me of Bath and Body Works and being in high school. Like, that warm sugar vanilla. Eric still loves wearing, like, body lotions and stuff that smell like cookies. So it's like... I don't know. There's just something so right and also springy about it because vanilla to me feels much more spring than like heavy chocolates and things like that. It's like, I want delicious, light, beautiful floral vanilla. So today though, I'm most specifically going to be talking about vanilla planifolia, which is in the Orchidaceae family. But of course, I also want to talk a little bit about like general orchid care, right? And this is one of those topics where I was like, I know orchids are complicated. Holy shit, there could be an entire podcast on orchids. <laughs> so let's like talk about this family, Orchidaceae. It is actually one of the two largest flowering plants, like largest families of flowering plants in the plant kingdom alongside Asteraceae, which we talk about all the time with herbalism. But there are actually 28,000 species of orchids across 763 genera, including all of those cheap little cuties from Trader Joe's. And a fun which are, fact- which, which are so cute, which are I so know. cute. But We're here for it. I've never kept one alive, so maybe you can help me out. <laughs> maybe. Uh, a fun fact from Wikipedia, though, that actually, like, blew my fucking dick off. There are four times more orchid species than there are mammal species. Wow. Yeah. I, you know what? Well, I, I, what's crazy to me about orchids, and I watched, I watched this documentary. I think it's on YouTube. Like, please don't quote me on that. But basically what they were talking about was how there's different species of orchids that imitate the things around them which is sort of like what they do yeah. and it's like and it's like um can orchids see because they don't have eyes and yet <laughs> and yet and yet they, and yet they do this mimicry and it's like uh, how how the fuck do you look how exactly you know like how do you look like the things around you that you can't see um I don't I, I just, uh, it's, it's, it's fast. It's, it's absolutely Nature fascinating. is magic. <laughs> and also with tea, uh, so orchids grow a lot around tea plantations. Um, because yeah. they, they, they join root systems with other plants, which is cool. Yeah. Orchids are fucking awesome. And so I'm going to be keeping this like very high level on general orchid talk because, um, Wow. That is, uh, guys, we can't talk about 28,000 <laughs> species. Um, but orchids, of course, are perennial plants. They primarily grow in one of two patterns, though. So there's the monopodial, which is where the stem grows from a single bud with leaves added annually from the apex. So vanilla is in this category. And the stems on these orchids can get to like several meters long. So it's like, the oldest growth will be the furthest back and the newest growth will be like towards the end of the vine. So they, they're very, they're almost like vining at that point. Typically the monopodial ones like are the epiphytes that'll like grow up trees. 
things like that. There are also, though, sympodial, where the plant produces a series of like adjacent shoots, which grow, bloom, and then stop growing and are eventually replaced. So these are orchids that like grow horizontally. A lot of the orchids that you're going to get at like Trader Joe's are sympodial. These are the ones that make the little like cakeys off of them. So it's usually one of those two. And again, you can like dig into different plant categories, but I just don't want to throw that much plant Latin at everybody. Uh, And there's a lot more to learn about the amazing diversity of orchid growing habits. If that's your jam, like, holy shit, you could really get into this. But orchids are monocots. They typically have simple leaves with parallel veins. And the leaves are actually like really diverse in size and shape. And the leaves of orchids are actually one of the ways you can determine the species of the plant, which is really unique from a lot of flowering plants, because how often have you heard me say, you really need to see it in bloom to be able to tell what it is. That's actually not the case with a lot of orchids. The leaves can tell you a lot about the species and also the habitat that that orchid is from. So orchids that are native to like sunny, dry places tend to have like thick, almost succulent type leaves. But there are also species that grow in like shaded areas, think like forest understories that can have like long, thin leaves. You have things like jewel orchids where the leaves are really the showstoppers. There are, there's so much variety. And of course, though, if you've ever watched Twin Peaks, you know that the flowers are really like the thing that most people grow orchids for, again, with the exception of jewel orchids. Um, And this is like, Another really complex thing to try and talk about, orchid flowers. Who knew? But I'm going to try and distill it down. Um, So some orchids can produce single flowers, but the majority of them do have the inflorescence with several flowers. Um, In particular, like the ones that you find at Trader Joe's where you have a bunch of different flowers growing off of like one little shoot. That's a flower with an inflorescence. And so the flowers are typically bilaterally symmetrical with an enlarged medial petal that they call the labellum or the lip. And it serves as like a perfect little landing pad for pollinators. So I feel like that's, that's the pretty iconic orchid look. You know, you think about it, it's got the beautiful like symmetrical leaves on top, sometimes with a third. And then you have like the long kind of one that sticks out that the, the bees can sit on top of. But... If you know much about the study of evolution, you might already know that Charles Darwin loved him some orchids. Like Darwin was obsessed with orchids, especially like the different complicated ways they've evolved for cross-pollination, which is kind of like what Nick was talking about. Orchids are like aliens. They're so smart and they adapt to so many different things. But actually like for most orchids, the chances of being pollinated are pretty slim. Which is why vanilla, for example, is almost exclusively reproduced through cuttings. But the fact that pollination is pretty unlikely is the reason also, though, that orchid flowers are so long-lasting, which is one of their best features for home cultivation. But think about it. If you're not likely to get pollinated right away, the flowers are going to last a lot longer because they're really holding out hope that a bumblebee is going to, like, crawl all the way in there. And manual pollination in horticulture is typically achieved by removing what is called the pollinia with a toothpick and moving it over to the seed parent. And the pollinia, it's very funny, it looks like orange testicles. 
like tiny orange testicles on the end of a toothpick. Google it. I'm not wrong. There are also like a ton of different ways to, for pollination to take place in the wild. So I'm not going to get into all of them, but I had a few honorable mentions that I wanted to share. So the cypripe, oh my God, this one is hard guys. Cypripediodiae, dei? I don't know. Y'all, it's hard. That was a long one. Uh, so this orchid actually traps visiting insects so that the only way out is through the anthers, which deposit pollen on the insect. So it's like exit through the gift shop. You cannot get back out the way that you, you came in. You cannot get back out. <laughs> it's wow. like, you got to crawl through my anthers if you're going to leave. And there are also uh, certain neotropical orchids that have evolved to work with orchid bees. And the males of this species actually go to the orchids to gather the chemicals that they require to synthesize pheromones that they use to attract mates. So the orchids have like evolved to basically provide pheromone perfume juice to male bees. So they have to come there so then they can go get their fuck on and reproduce. Like, it's so crazy, right? Um, anyway, so there's, you could really have an entire podcast dedicated just to orchids. So I'm going to keep it like, this is brief, believe it or not. I have edited so much out of this, but if you have specific questions, like reach out to me, they are complicated, wonderful little flowers. So, you know, of course you like Nick want to know, I see these beautiful $20 orchids at Trader Joe's. How can I keep it alive? They're actually not as complex as they have a reputation for being, provided you're not getting anything super exotic. Like we're not getting into jewel orchids here. If you have a terrarium and want something with like leaves that look like they're covered in lightning bolts, Google jewel orchids, but we're not doing that today. Orchids want bright light, but indirect. The like golden mystery child of houseplants, right? Bright indirect light. Right, the, right, right. The easiest thing is like, if you're in the Northern hemisphere, you're going to be thinking about an East or a West facing window. Weekly waterings are usually all you need, and you want to fertilize with orchid-specific fertilizer during active growing, repot it in fresh orchid mix whenever it stops blooming, and orchid mix is mostly bark. It's like super well-draining, which makes sense because the orchids, again, that we most often buy for home are epiphytic, which means they don't grow in the soil. They like grow in on tree trunks or like in ledge cracks. You know, these aren't plants that are like, that have tap roots. They really need a lot of drainage. And you'll also see when you are like, when you buy an orchid, I would always suggest if you are able to, to transplant it into a clear like container because they have those like clear cash pots that you can put orchids in because that's going to be the easiest way to keep you, keep you from overwatering it because the roots actually slightly change color when they get dried out. They're like really plump and like white green when they're full of water. And then they like slightly contract and get kind of like a tannish light brown when they need to be watered because you don't want to overwater these. Think about it like logically, right? You're in a tropical rainforest and you're attached to a tree. Well, you're going to have evolved so that when you get these downpours, you can hold on to all of the water, but you're not sitting in like a wet tree trunk forever, like that would be right. Like you're weird. you're not you're not on the ground sitting in the water. Yeah, even. exactly. Like the water is flowing over you and going into the ground below. Exactly, you. exactly. So that's why orchid mix is like super super dense, like super super um, coarse and like quick draining. I actually always keep orchid mix around, and I don't I don't grow orchids personally. I have, but 
I have so many plants. I ended up focusing on Hoyas for my epiphytes, but I actually use orchid bark to amend other like store-bought soil because it helps like add drainage without adding stuff that's going to like add too much moisture retention. Orchid bark is like the best amendment for homemade soil. If you just get miracle Grow, go grab yourself a bag of orchid mix, put it in like 25% orchid mix to 75% of your like store-bought miracle Grow, And I promise you that's going to like up your plant game really, really this, significantly. This is, this is, this is a hot, this is a hot tip. Yeah. Absolute, absolute banger of a tip. Yeah. And please, for the love of fucking God, don't put ice cubes in your plants. Like there's that weird thing that people are like, put an ice cube a week in your orchid. Have you seen where orchids grow? They don't want an ice cube. They don't want an ice cube. That's mean. Uh, always water with room temp. Like just do that. Like don't put cold water on your plants. You don't want to jump in a cold shower. You're not Gwyneth Paltrow fucking cold showering every day. Like that's a normal thing. That's so psycho. That's that's so psycho. The whole point of a shower is that it's hot and it's it's hot and relaxing. I have tried doing the cold shower thing because like they're like, oh, it's good for your metabolism and stuff. And I was like, it just made me angry. (laughs) Can I can I say can I say though? I finish cold. I finish cold because I I I do my shit. I rinse my conditioner cold and I do my my face wash cold. But I don't put my whole body under the cold. I don't put my whole body on just my head. No, I, I always, so, I mean, this is a, a side, sidetrack, but I always take much more like warm rather than hot showers. Personally, I take very hot baths. I take very warm showers, not hot showers. That's like my vibe, but back to orchids, don't fucking put ice cubes in them, water them with room temp water. Also, if you can give it extra humidity, it'll really love you. Like An orchid's dream place would be a bathroom window with an east or west facing like window, right? Like, because that, that would be great. You get all the steam from the the shower. Oh my God. What a treat. To to admit something crazy that I do. uh, Sometimes when I have plants that are looking a little cranky with me, uh, like calatheas tend to do, I'll take them in the bathroom while I'm showering and just like let them sit in the steam while I'm in there. Like I don't shower with my plants because I am not at that level, (laughs) but I do have them like in the bathroom with me so they can like soak up the steam. But of course, like they don't love direct sunlight. So, you know, like don't put them in the bathroom just for the steam. If it only has like a South facing window, not worth it. It'll burn. It'll shrivel up, but you could also just like group it with other plants or if you have a humidifier, but again, like orchids do really well in windowsills in California. And y'all have heard me talk about it being like 15% humidity here on the reg. So I tend to be of the opinion that humidity issues are very often not your problem with houseplants. It's usually something else that's the issue. And I would say, I, I kind of think that's that was my main issue with trying to grow orchids because what I have heard, and you know, maybe you know if this is true or not, but what I have heard as like um, a rumor, a wives' tale, is that if you run your AC a lot, it actually makes the air in your apartment very dry. It does. But the thing about orchids and most houseplants is like humidity should be like the very last thing on your list of stuff to worry about. Like, because, yeah, because you need to make sure um, it's, it's hard getting... to it's hard to control. Like it's the humidity. Hard the humidity in a room it's hard to control and most of the time the humidity that the problems that humidity causes are almost exclusively like 
uh, aesthetic. So like you might get like brown tips on your calatheas, but the most important things are like making sure it's in the right potting mix, because that is like, that's the first thing, because if the potting mix is wrong, nothing else is going to save it. <laughs> like you need it to have drainage, of course, but if you don't have like good well-draining potting mix, you're really just like setting yourself up to fail. You need to make sure you're not over or underwatering. You need to feed it semi-regularly during the growing season. Uh, weekly, weekly is the good like rule of thumb. So weekly, W-E-E-K, weekly, W-E-A-K. So feed it weekly, weekly. So with like diluted fertilizer. Mm. Um, and then of course, light. Like really, if you only had to like, if you only had time to think about two things with your plant and everything else was going to be like, flying by the seat of your pants, make sure they have enough light and make sure they're in the right potting mix. If it's, if it doesn't have enough light, it's not going to use the water in the potting mix up fast enough. And then you're going to drown it by overwatering. Like that's the thing. All that to say, I feel like everyone on the plant internet is like, Oh, it's because your humidity is low when they see anything wrong with plants. And it's like, nah, man, that is like, I promise you it's the least of your worries. It's like 5% to 10%. Once you're like, plant game is strong then you can like get yourself a fucking humidifier anyway so flower spikes though once they're done producing you can snip them off at the base which will help encourage the plant to produce a new flower spike next year so let's shift gears now though because i want to talk about the star of our orchid show today vanilla planifolia and so vanilla has this really interesting history that's like closely linked to the relationship between Europe and Mesoamerica. So the earliest documentation that we have referencing vanilla tells us that it was a vital part of commerce uh, among the ancient cultures that lived near modern-day Veracruz, uh, including the Maya, Aztecs, and Incas. It was most notably, of course, associated with the Aztecs, and it was introduced to them after they conquered the Totonacan Empire, uh, they used the cured vanilla pods as like an ingredient in the traditional like Aztec chocolate drink that was really enjoyed by like noble families. It wasn't not everybody had tasty Aztec chocolate and it made its way to Europe in the 1500s when Hernan Cortez sent some back to Spain and then like botanists and noblemen who wanted like the fancy new spice worked hard to get it to France and England by the 18th century. And then in 1822, it was actually sent from France to Reunion Island, where it like thrived and quickly propagated among the islands of the Indian Ocean. So Madagascar and the Comoro Islands. But for the longest time, like Mexico has had a monopoly on the commercial production of vanilla. But recently, it has come under some scrutiny because of adulteration with other plants and ingredients. So again, just like Make sure that you're sourcing things well. Um, you also do have to keep in mind that a lot of vanilla extracts are synthetic flavorings that are made from like wood pulp or chemicals. True vanilla is like, it's different and it's going to cost you more. Like that's just the reality of it. So true vanilla is not only important in foods, but like when we're talking about global commerce, it's also used in like the pharmaceutical industry, cosmetics, and even fragrance industry. So like... What does this plant look like? Well, this orchid, it's a climbing tropical vine that can grow up to 30 meters long. And it's cultivated alongside native trees, either in like forest type settings or on plantations. And on plantations, they'll actually plant support trees for the vines to grow up. 
And the stem of them is like thick and succulent. The leaves are bright green and they get to be four to nine inches long and up to like two and a half inches wide. And they form aerial roots from the stem. Um, so it can like grow up trees. If you've ever seen a monstera with like the big roots hanging off of it, aerial roots. Um, and the flowers are like pale yellow green and about two inches in diameter. And interestingly enough, the flowers don't actually have the traditional vanilla smell that you might expect. It's like very lightly scented. It's 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 always interesting to think how they figured out. Right. How did they get there? Oh, you just wait until I tell you how you make vanilla beans taste like vanilla beans. And you're going to be like, who fucking did this? <laughs> um, but once they're pollinated, mostly by hand and cultivation, they develop their fruit, which are actually hanging bean pods that are five to ten inches long and one inch around. The pods actually kind of look like runner beans when they're in this form, and each one contains thousands of tiny black seeds, which we call vanilla beans. And they need just a little bit of shade when they're growing to keep from burning, which makes sense they grow in forest. But then after the beans are hand harvested, just at the onset of ripening, they actually have to go through this like super intense curing and drying process. And again, let me remind you, hand harvested. They are hand harvested. And that the beans actually aren't ready to harvest until six to nine months after pollination. So like just keep that in mind when we talk about this curing process. So the first step is to submerge the pods in hot water, which they call killing them or wilting them. Then the pods are steamed in blanket lined boxes. And this is where you can like first start smelling the like classic vanilla scent. Then they're sun dried before being put back in the sweating boxes. And the quality of the vanilla actually depends on how many times the drying and sweating processes are alternated. And then next they're slow dried on racks at about 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. And then finally they're bundled into groups based on their grade and then conditioned in a wax lined box for at least two months, two months, two months. So, so we're talking, it, it, it's, it, there, there's a chance, there's a chance. It, we're, we're talking like over a year. Yeah. To go yep. from poll pollinating the flower, not even growing the orchid itself, but pollinating yeah. the flower to having a vanilla bean. Doesn't that give you some like respect for how somehow affordable they are still? Like, yeah, I mean, it, uh, and you know, um, as someone who bought a big ass thing of vanilla the last time I was in Mexico and who fully plans on buying another big ass thing of vanilla when I am in Mexico this summer, I, it's crazy because you get a big ass bottle of Mexican vanilla for like $10. Yeah, which is a lot in Mexican money as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, but, but still it's like, and then that's a, but that's a lot of vanilla. That's a lot of vanilla. But also, vanilla. I, I, I had no idea. I knew that what, like, you know, like one van vanilla plant does not actually make a lot of vanilla, but I did not know that it took a, over a whole fucking year. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I was like, yeah. I'm never going to complain about the price of vanilla beans again. Like, because I always do, because I get fresh vanilla beans for certain recipes, like my coconut cream pie have mm, to have yeah. like real vanilla. But anyway, so now that we know how hard it is to get a fucking vanilla bean, does it have herbalism uses? Disclaimer, 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 y'all. I'm not a doctor. Nick's not a doctor. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please don't use a fucking podcast to diagnose or treat anything. Never start on an herbal regimen without discussing it with your healthcare professionals. So 
In modern Western herbalism, vanilla isn't actually super widely used for health benefits, but it is an excellent flavoring for less than delicious tinctures and teas, which is really great because as herbalists, something you're always trying to make sure is that like the people you're working with will actually take the herbal remedies. Like, you know, certain things that are really good for you don't necessarily taste great. Vanilla, good way to solve that. Historically, though, it was used as an aphrodisiac, uh, an aromatic stimulant, and as an antidepressant agent. And we don't actually have a lot of science to back this up, but vanillin and other like components in vanilla do have antimicrobial and antioxidant effects. So like that definitely counts for something. But overall, vanilla is not widely used in herbalism these days. And I think a lot of it probably has to do with the cost. And with herbalism, you typically have to take things for extended periods of time to notice the uh, effects of them. And something that's as expensive as fresh vanilla, that's really not feasible for most people. And I'm like, herbalism is for the people. So herbalism, herbalism is for the people. And also, I mean, you know, it's um, I think I think you're kind of onto something with being like, if you are taking something else that is maybe unpleasant and vanilla does not uh, what effects it, it, it might have would be mild and not countering what you're doing, you know? Yeah. Couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt. Go for it. Not at all. But what about the magic y'all? So vanilla is associated with the water element and the planet Venus. And traditionally it's been used in love and lust magic and for mental powers, which are like all in alignment with historical herbalism uses. Coincidence? I think not. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) the most uh, straightforward and least wasteful way to use vanilla, though, is in kitchen magic, right? You can actually put a whole vanilla bean in a container of sugar and infuse it with, like, delicious vanilla flavor and, of course, plenty of, like, lovely magical energy. Like, you could then use that to make sugar cookies for your loved one and maybe serve it with, like, sweetened tea or coffee to really add some oomph to, like, your love-filled baking goods. You can also use like spent vanilla bean pods in sugar that way. So if you like make cookies and you scraped them out, you can actually put the scraped out like bean husk in the sugar as well. So it's like ways to like get the most out of it. Um, You can also like make yourself golden milk by infusing it with vanilla before adding, adding like turmeric and oat straw if you have like a big test or something that you need extra focus for. Um, And this is an instance where I'd actually boil the vanilla bean in the milk whole because you can actually rinse it, dry it, and then refrigerate it to use again later. Like hot tip, if you do not cut the pod open, you can reuse it. Just make sure you rinse it, dry it, and refrigerate it. I also love the idea, though, magically of making a body scrub that's infused with vanilla for some, like, extra self-love power. And, like, how Venusian is a vanilla-scented body scrub? Like, yes, please. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, smell like a sugar cookie. Right? So to infuse the vanilla, you can combine, like, the vanilla beans with brown sugar and coconut oil. And then what I would do is, like, Take that, get into the tub and like scrub yourself up before taking like a luxurious shower. And like after rinsing, you're going to smell like a fucking like tasty coconut macaroon, which is like, is there anything better? Or you could make a vanilla body butter. To do like a body butter, you can do a mixture of like shea butter, coconut oil, and just a little bit of beeswax in a jar. The beeswax helps like stabilize it. And then you're going to add the scraped out vanilla beans 
and you can cut the pods into pieces that are about an inch long and put it all in the jar together. And you're gonna put that jar in like a boiling water bath to melt all the oils and the vanilla together and let it sit in that boiling water bath for about 15 minutes. So you can really like infuse the vanilla into there. And then once that's done, strain it through a cheesecloth before you let it solidify in your container of choice. And for extra like Venusian vibes, I love the idea of like adding some rose quartz to the container before you pour the infusion in. So you're getting lots of like self-love and your wonderfully moisturizing and deliciously scented body butter. So mm. sources mm-hmm. today, the herbarium, Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, fitasamamabear.com. She had a great recipe for uh, a body butter and... Yeah, the body butter, I think, came from her. Wikipedia and On the Ledge podcast. Hmm. Yeah. Well, oh my God. I I, I don't think I'm going to be getting an orchid anytime soon because famously my apartment only has north-facing windows. Um, yeah, that's probably more your problem than anything else, which... It's tough, but if you have north facing windows, you know, you can also get like grow light bulbs and put them in a lamp. So it's like cute. And then you can have little plants. Like you could get like a grow light and a lamp, Nick, and like put an orchid on your bedside table. I, that would be cute. I'm also like, how cute would it be to do that in the corner of my vanity in my bathroom? (gasps) Yes. Just like, because there's 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 a little spot there. There's a little spot there. And then, that could that could be like the light in the bathroom too, because um, right now I do have I do constantly have a light on in there, and it's Christmas lights. So, um, but yeah, so maybe maybe we're onto something. Maybe I'll get a bathroom hey. orchid because I do. I always get one. I always get one when I'm done spring cleaning, and then I kill it. So yeah, they're they're tough. They're tough. They're not they're not as forgiving as some plants. Well, and you know, maybe I can get some help with that from my house gods. So mm, yes, I'm so excited to talk about house gods. I know, and I really can't. I really cannot believe we haven't discussed this yet either. Like, this is one of those episodes where it's like, how have we not done this? Episode seventy-five. Only twenty-five more episodes until the hundredth episode, which we absolutely have to do something for. Yeah. But you guys, this week, I have the immense pleasure of taking you all on a journey into the world of house gods, which is really such a fascinating topic to learn about. And to start with, worshipping some form of a hearth goddess or another is literally one of the oldest forms of religious practice, period, full stop. Um, But it's also truly a cornerstone, I think, of both of our practices as like eclectic and kitchen witches and green witches. like hearth to me it's a it's a very wiccan thing which you know wicca was kind of like my first introduction into witchcraft um i don't consider myself a wiccan really what i love is that hearth magic is this unbroken continuum from ancient times so we can trace this kind of practice to like from like ishtar and uruk mesopotamia to Hestia and Vesta, which, you know, we're going to learn all about that from you later, to like Freya and even like Brigid, all of these great hearth goddesses. But even before any of that, there was this unnamed animistic religiosity that early humans had, um, and they had their own beliefs in protective hearth deities. And really the idea that fire was somehow protective and 
the center of the community and the center of your home, but including, but they, you know, like these animistic religions have this idea that all things, including inanimate objects like a house, contain spirits. So this belief system can be compared to Shintoism, which is a surviving traditional Japanese spirituality where they believe that, you know, everything has a spirit, rocks, trees, buildings, bridges. And yeah, so basically the idea is that your house and your hearth themselves have their own spirits, which you could call on for protection and ongoing prosperity. But with such a truly worldwide occurrence, one really has to find a way to zero in and tell a story. So for house gods, I'm specifically going to be looking closer at the Roman system of house gods. And I've chosen to do this for a couple of reasons. So firstly, they really had a very complex and codified system of house gods and tributes, like probably the most developed system of house gods, uh, which was based on the Greek system as well. But there's another reason I have chosen the Roman system as as well. Uh, One of the very cool things that I got to read up on whilst doing my research was the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Which I have to say happened during Virgo season, like right at the beginning. I think it was like August 24th. It was like the day before my birthday. Right. So it's uh, it's Vesta season. Even. Yeah, Vesta season. Bam. And, but we have this incredible archaeological evidence, which just uh, really goes to show this very codified and very complex system of house gods in action. Because what you don't really get a lot in archaeology is like a whole house that's been preserved under 50 feet of ashes, you know? Yeah, you're finding like pieces of pottery. (laughs) Right. And then, but you might be asking yourself, what the hell does Mount Vesuvius have to do with any of this? And like, fuck you, I'm getting to it. And there's... Okay, so there's there's a couple of villas in Herculaneum that were like fully, fully, fully preserved in the ash. And that is where we get all of these beautiful surviving mosaics, street graffiti, fast food restaurants. Like, it's a whole freaking town. Yeah, people, people jerking off. People like... jerking off. Oh my God. Uh, so Bailey, my roommate, literally said we should talk about the guy jerking off. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're, we're much too sophisticated. We're so sophisticated. Enter Shannon immediately bringing up the guy <laughs> masturbating. Um. Um, <laughs> but no, also, so I actually didn't talk about this either, but, you know, kind of the idea of house gods, though, is that everyone kind of has their own local system. And one of the villas that they did excavate in Herculaneum did have a massive, massive, massive mosaic of Priapus. And so if you Google Priapus or go to his Wikipedia page, it is a picture of this mosaic of, of course, this god with the giant erect dick. And uh, someone had that in their house, um, Uh, sort of in this room that I'm going to talk about later on where the altar to the house gods uh, was. Just trying to invoke that big dick energy since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time. But so, so Pompeii and Herculaneum were buried under 50 feet of volcanic ash. 
and they're perfect little time capsules. And why is that important? Well, this snapshot in time provides us with the most detailed information we are ever likely to get about how ancient Roman houses were set up, and more importantly, what kinds of things could be found on their hearths and altars. Because unlike a city like Athens, where people have continuously lived in it from ancient times, like those houses have been torn down, right? Like these houses uh, are still standing under 50 feet of ash, some of them. Yeah, I went to a really great exhibition on Pompeii in Los Angeles at the uh, Museum of Science and Natural History that was so cool. They it had some of like the preserved artifacts that we got to see. It was awesome. But, um, you know, it's like we, they also didn't really like pack up their shit and go either. So like no. their heart, their, their hearths were still set up. Their altars were still set up. Yeah, I think it's there like, was... you have to remember how fast this happened. Right, right, right. So it's cool and it's great yeah. and it's good for us. So that's why I'm zeroing in, that's why I'm zeroing in on Roman house gods. Um, and also, so Herculaneum, especially, these were like rich people's vacation houses. So these are big show offy houses. And so you really, really get some of the best examples of the style. Like work was put into this, craftsman was put, craftsmanship was put into this. So I, I wanted to say when I went to that exhibition, they had actually set up one of the rooms to look like like the room with the altars to the house gods. And they literally, like in this one house example, had basically built like an indoor pool, essentially, mm-hmm. that was fed from a natural spring that was surrounded by like columns and all sorts of like dedications to their house gods. Like they built a fucking indoor pool for their house gods. And yeah, I mean, and that was a very, very common feature in f- uh, fine homes. Yeah, rich fine, people, was, y'all. Was this was this um this atrium? And I'm actually going to talk a little bit about probably what you're talking about. So that the atrium would have been the, the like formal entryway, uh, and that's where you would have a reflecting pool and your and your finest columns. Um, and also just to just to be really show offy when people first get to your house. It's crazy. I was like, but, man, if I had that in my house, I'm like, that could be my whole house and be fine. This atrium, that's enough. <laughs> uh, right. But also, I, I, kind of speaking on that, these are good household altars to look at for house gods because it was a status thing. So if you were doing well, you would attribute it to being very pious and paying the correct respect to your household gods. And so if you were building an, a, a new house, say like a vacation villa, you would really want to show, you would want to show your devotion to the house gods in the design. So, and yeah, so that's kind of why we're like looking at, at these like um, Pompeian and Herculaneum examples. Um, so yeah. What we were talking about, the front of house altar um, would be right in the entry atrium. And this would be devoted to what uh, they would call the pentares. And that's sort of like the public gods. So Rome did have a state religion. So Jupiter, Juno, Mars, all of those guys. And Vesta, of course, and uh, publicly celebrated with temples, uh, Bacchus. that's kind of what you would see a lot in this this more public atrium altar. 
this, this wasn't like the, the family altar. This isn't where you would actually like go and light incense and pray. This is kind of more like at the show-offy altar. So yeah, and where guests would like quote unquote greet the house gods. Yeah, greet that to greet the house gods. Um, and you would perhaps have statuettes of your lares, uh, which is which is the house gods. Um, and then you would have the altar that the family would use, and this would be in the central storeroom right, where they would keep their wine. They would keep their um, amphorae of wine, which is what those big, big vases of wine were called. Um, they would also keep their oil in there and sort of other valuable foodstuffs. Um, so basically it would be safe from intruders, but so this is also sort of like the hearth, right? Uh, not like, maybe not quite, but it's probably attached to the kitchen. It's hearth adjacent. <laughs> It's hearth adjacent, um, and basically, this is the this is the real deal. Uh, this is the real altar that the family would use, uh, and these altars were often devoted to Vesta, or you know, the proxy goddess of Hestia, which is the original version because it predates ancient Rome, ancient Greece. Hello, uh, so we're basically going to be learning all about Vesta very soon. Um, but then, yeah, there were the statuettes of the Lare, and the Lare were these kind of generalized heroic Roman ancestor spirits. Think based on Romulus and Remus, but not specifically Rom Romulus and Remus. Um, and then you would have Vesta, and you would have Janus. So Janus was the god of thresholds and doorways. And side note, if you guys don't know who Janus is, Janus is... Um, the Roman god that's often depicted with a face on each side, sort of looking each way, showing that coming and going nature of thresholds and doors. And that's, uh, you know, gonna come up later on. So, you know, keep in mind that Janus has the two faces, um, but the Lare, they're the true house gods. They're, they're kind of like generalized ancestor gods. And, while Vesta was the hearth goddess and everything that that entails, the Lari were often represented by these little statues of youths bearing cornucopias and wine vessels that were dressed in what, what they called the ancient style. I mean, to us, the people saying that are ancient, but we're, they're talking about the style that would have been in vogue at, at the Romulus and Remus times or uh, the, the Roman kingdom, because Rome famously had six kings and then decided to have an emperor instead. Um, or no, they decided to have a dem democracy, which then elected an emperor no, eventually. A, a democratic republic, much a like the United States, where they're like, some people can vote. Yeah, <laughs> some, some people can vote. Um, some people. But so we're talking about the Lare, and the Lare. Also, like, so there's lare that are like house gods, but then you would also have different lare for like taverns and bridges. And like, really, the, the lare would be like the local god of, could be the local god of anything. But they're, they're, the statues of them are kind of like Romulus and Remus. Anywho, they also receive the lion's share of household god offerings. So like incense, blood sacrifices most of the time though is that it was a food sacrifice and you would get out the little statuettes from your altar 
during a meal and set a place for them at the table and give them a, a serving of the food that you're eating. And then at the end, you don't eat the food. You do not eat the food. You do not feed it to the dog. You burn it because that is the true offering. Like you're not, you're not reusing that. Yeah. If you're making an offering, you can't take these backsies. You cannot take these backsies. You cannot feed, <laughs> you cannot feed it to the dog because that's not an offering. That's dog food. That's dog, that's, <laughs> that's dog food. Um, but so going back to the storeroom, another popular motif in the storeroom, in the real, fa- the true altar to the house gods, uh, this family altar, um, was to do mosaic art of Bacchus, the god of wine. I mean, you have to think it's like hospitality is very famous in the Mediterranean. And of course, it's sort of in the same room as your wine. But it's also a really cool idea to honor Bacchus as a house god to ensure that your wine is good and everyone's having a good time, uh, which it tracks. It, it, it tracks. Um, yeah. I mean, how are you going to be a good host if the wine sucks? How are you going to be a good host if the wine sucks? Uh, and before I talk about the patriarchy, because I'm going to have to talk a little bit about the patriarchy, we're talking, uh, it's a Roman themed episode. I do want to talk about the Lari and their very libertine attitudes towards class. So they protected everyone in the house, including slaves and servants. And there was a festival to the neighborhood Lares. There were, again, Lares for almost everything, where slaves and servants were invited to join in the revelry because in a weirdly progressive religious view, these protective ancestral spirits were not into the whole caste system. So that's kind of cool, right? Yeah, it's like uh, our our gods don't do that, but we do that. But we do that. <laughs> but mm, the patriarchy. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it, but <laughs> we have to talk about it. So we love, love, love Vesta slash Hestia and hearth goddesses in general. And I would just love to leave it there and have sweet dreams about the equality loving spirits of Lare. But, alas. but the most revered and important house god was undoubtedly the genius of the paterfamilias. <sighs> well, I said it. So um, genius, though, in this context uh, does not mean genius like you're a genius, like you have a high IQ. Uh, it's actually uh, a word and kind of more closely related to, to genie, even like a spirit. So it's a spirit of divinity, like a guardian angel who watches over a Roman man from the moment of birth until his death. And this spirit is seen as giving him a rational mind and also protecting him and giving him the prosperity that he has. And Christians, of course, say that this is just uh, his soul, but really it is separate in the Roman tradition. It's It's like a separate spirit that's watching over you. But obviously, the representative of this genius of the paterfamilias would be a bust of the, 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 the male head of household. And so this was the main focus of family worship. This would be, you know, kind of greeting and uh, saluting the house gods that would be front and center. And I have to say it, I have to say it, we're being, we're telling the truth. 
But here at Wands and Fronds, we're for the girls and the gays. And so I'm honestly kind of glad worshiping the spirit of your actual living father has declined in popularity in the pagan community because I just, I don't think I would be into it if that was like what we did nowadays. No, I don't think many of us would. Although can you, can you imagine if I just had a bust of Tim? Oh my uh, God. <laughs> just like in my, in my little entryway. Just, I, I would, uh, I, I feel like we would always have to like rub Tim on the head when we came in for good luck. Uh, if you had a bust of him in, in your entry. Which, you know, I love my dad. Uh, uh, famously for a gay person, I do have a good relationship with my dad. I just don't think I would worship my dad. I, I don't think anyone should worship their fathers. And it's like when you think about how much America loves Rome, you kind of see some of this with like the dick sucking of the patriarch of the family. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the nuclear family, the man Ugh. is the king of his castle, all of that um hot hot 1950s garbage y'all that aren't on the patreon cannot see the horrendous faces nick and i have been making this whole time yeah Yeah. um i tried to convey it with my voice i tried to convey my disgust i tried to convey my disgust uh with my voice but okay but we're talking about we're talking about the the idea of house gods um so what would we do? What would we do with our house gods? So besides making offerings of incense and food, on a day-to-day level, you would greet your household gods when arriving at a house. Um, so saluting them on the way out as well, ensuring their protection while you are out. Very good, very, very good. When a woman got married, the first thing she would do when she moved into her new family's house, her married family's house, um, would be to pay a bronze coin, which sometimes had a Janus head emblazoned on it, because we're talking about entryways and um, sort of thresholds, which I think is very, very, very symbolic of like you're entering this new family and sort of the symbolism of like crossing the threshold, you know, like getting carried over the threshold even. Yeah. So, so you know, there's like threshold vibes at, at every wedding even. Um, or, I mean, you know, they still kind of do that. I mean, do people still like carry their partner over the threshold sometimes? Is that a thing? I mean, I don't know. We lived together before we got married, me and my partner. So, and we were drunk after the wedding. Oh my God. <laughs> you sure were. You sure were. Uh, but yeah, so we're paying a bronze coin with Janus, the god of thresholds and doors at the new altar. Um, births were often done in the presence of the household god statuettes, especially Vesta, uh, because we, you know, of course, we're invoking the ancient motherhood vibes of hearth uh, of a hearth goddess during uh, the birth of a child. Hell yeah. And when a young man came of age, uh, he would give, uh, apparently, every Roman boy had a special med- medallion um, and then you would you would take off your medallion that I guess showed that you were a, a boy and not a man. And uh, your first beard, you would be ritualistically shaved. And they would uh, put the put the beard on the altar. So the 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 house altar, of course, not the not the not the public one. We're not just putting a pile of hair 
on the fancy public one. That's for guests only. Um, uh, and then you would also, so uh, change into your big boy toga. So, so there's like a, a, a Latin word, which I'm not, not going to do it, but basically you take off your boy toga and you get your, your man toga and you leave your boy toga and your scraggly little neck beard that you shave, <laughs> that you shave off for the first time. And you leave that, um, you leave those on the altar with your little, little boy necklace. I don't know if you get a man necklace. It didn't say. I, I hope it's just a gold chain. It's just a gold chain that says your name, you know, it's like whatever Lucius or <laughs> Remus or, you know, I whatever. love that. And that's really all I have for today because um, I could tell when I finished this that this was going to be a really long episode. But I think the idea that's really cool about house gods is that everyone really did have their own kind of take on it. Like I said, you would see Bacchanalia themes. You would see, um, sometimes they would do like the the, the Centaurus, uh, the, the, the Centaur War. Uh, oh, that's theme. Cool. Like people would, you know, people would kind of invoke that energy as well. Uh, obviously the giant, giant, giant mosaic of Priapus, which is hilarious. Um, and but you know it's kind of like we, as witches as as pagans on the internet in the year of our lord 2022 we all kind of have our own belief system and i think that's sort of an appealing thing that that we can take from the idea of house gods is that even though you think of rome as this monolith like each roman house had their own system and their own gods that they would personally venerate and worship and make offerings to so you know it's like it's like uh, like we don't have to be a monolith and it's 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 kind of cool even to have your own local thing going on I mean it's like the best goosebumps books were the choose your own adventures absolutely and so that's the lifestyle that we're that we're living but now we want to learn about really not your not your your actual living father, but the uh, the goddess at the center of all of the all of these house gods, Hestia, aka Vesta. You know you know the Romans just changed the name. Yeah, so Hestia, she is the goddess of hearth and the home. And I did want to just kind of like clarify that the hearth in ancient Greece refers, of course, to like your home hearth fire, but also the common house of the home, the Britannium, which was typically in the center of town and of course had its own hearth. And so when visitors or immigrants came into town, they would be welcomed at the Pretenium, and if members of a town wanted to like start their own colony, they would take a torch lit by the town hearth and use it to light the hearth in their new location. So it was like this center of your entire little community. And it was also not only uncool for the town hearth fire to go out, it was considered sacrilegious. Like, and you couldn't just relight the town hearth with any old, like, match. Like, the most common way to relight it was by using a magnifying glass in the sun, since that fire was seen as, like, more sacred and unsullied than other sources. And in the home, of course, the hearth is seen as, like, the center of the house, and thus, like, the center of the family. So, like... Hearts are very important. Um, I also love that, like, any new politicians would, like, take their vows to, like, Hestia 
at town hearths. So like Hestia is really in the mix, right? She's like the center of the town and the center of the house. And really like you couldn't let this fire go out unless it was ritually like extinguished. So Hestia is everywhere kind of all the time. The hearth fire is serious business. Uh, And even though there aren't actually many temples dedicated to Hestia, it's not because she wasn't like a huge part of the lives and spiritual practice of the ancient Greeks. She was actually probably the most honored and revered of like the entire pantheon. But the sacred fire of every sacrifice of every sacrificial altar was considered to belong to Hestia. So that's like your sacrificial altar in your house in the tavern, in the business, in the middle of town, anywhere in ancient Greece, there is a fire for making sacrifices that's considered to be Hestia's place. So she actually like takes the first portion of every sacrifice to any deity that's made there. She literally taxes every sacrifice to every other God. Like, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. And every meal began and ended with an offering to Hestia. Children are accepted into the family by being presented at Hestia's hearth, which ensures her blessing on the newest family member. And again, even like the vows of public servants were made to Hestia. Like they didn't just like swear to God. They swore to Hestia, not Zeus. Hestia. That's 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 big dick energy right there. Right. I'm like damn, like, household father spirit, Hestia's gonna punch you in the dick. (laughs) Um, So, like the Hartha is the center of the home, Hestia really was, like, the center of Greek life. And she's the eldest goddess of the Titans Cronus and Rhea, but because Cronus, like, ate all of his kids and then puked them up in reverse order, she's also the youngest. So she was, like, first for real born, youngest puke born. So sometimes you'll see her listed as both the youngest and the oldest, or the oldest and the youngest, That's why, if you ever see that and are like, what the fuck does that mean? But unlike Demeter and Hera, Hestia was a virgin goddess forever. And there are a few variations on the myth that explain this, but my favorite is that Apollo and Poseidon both wanted to marry Hestia. And she was worried that if she chose one over the other, chaos would follow. So to keep the peace on Mount Olympus, she swore a vow of celibacy. And because she was so selfless, Zeus and like, a remarkable moment of not being a prick granted her the central place in the home and the first portion of all human offerings because she was like, I'm not going to like let my vag destroy Mount Olympus, even though that is some magical pussy. (laughs) If she could literally break apart the old gods. Um, She appears in like a few stories, but she's not actually super prominent in Greek mythology. And I think it is because like the relationship to Hestia was like, so just regular and like every day she wasn't really mythologized (laughs) y'all my brain is hard it's hurting today um so you know homer the well-known author of things such as the iliad and the odyssey actually left hestia entirely out of his works um and i again i tend to think of it less as like kind of a dick move and more is just to like Hestia was just like it was almost taken for granted that everyone just like had a relationship and like knew her. everyone everyone knows her everyone knows her yeah exactly um she's not actually represented in pictorial form very often either but when she is she's typically like a middle-aged woman wearing a veil sometimes standing by a fire when you think of like maiden mother crone like she's big mother vibes like that's why she's like middle-aged and again the fire hearth fire she's also usually depicted with either a staff or carrying flowers which 
again, this is all like big dick energy, but also like she is the master of the home of like birth of keeping things going. Like when you think about things that she has dominion over, it's like the hearth of the home, but also like buildings and literal doorways and like structures that basically keep society functioning. Like Hestia is the glue. She has dominion over the things that make life happen. So she is, um, there are a few like quick stories about her that I wanted to share because she does show up in some. So first there was a story where her chastity was in danger. And this happened uh, at a feast when the drunken god of fertility, Priapus, who we just talked about, Mm -hmm, tried to rape mm -hmm. her while she was sleeping. But fortunately for her, a donkey started braying and it woke her up. And the guests who were like super pissed off chased Priapus away, like in contempt. And that's actually why donkeys were rested and given beautiful garlands on Hestia's feast day. May I, may I please jump in here? Yeah. Please jump in here. Just to say that um, when I was reading the article about Priapus, because I was like, hmm, maybe this could be a good segment. For, because of that same story, if you wanted to um, get Priapus's aid, you would sacrifice a donkey. <laughs> because because Priapus hates donkeys because it interrupted his um boinking. His boinking of the sleeping chaste goddess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the second story is like according to Plato, Hestia doesn't appear in other myths because she has to remain in the house of the gods all alone to tend the eternal celestial fire, which is both her privilege and her predicament. And because of that, her only manifestation among humans was in the cracking of fire, which Aristotle says is the sound of the goddess laughing. Oh, I like that. Right? I got goosebumps. I always get goosebumps when I think about that. Um, But of course, like you want to work with Hestia in your magical practice. Why not? Of course, you can make a home altar to her. Uh, I think that like making an altar to her, if you have a fireplace on the mantle is like, Come on. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Right? Um, You can also make an altar to her in your kitchen, but you can think about, like, representations of fire, donkeys. So, like, candles. Like, you could get a a candle and carve a donkey into it and put that on your kitchen cabinet and boom, Hestia altar. Like, you don't have to go all out. Um, Traditional offerings include things like wine, olive oil, and fruit, but, like, baked goods or anything homemade, those are also great choices. And some people suggest lighting candles when you're cleaning your home or doing like other housework to honor her. And I just, I love the idea of like doing a deep spring clean and then lighting a candle to thank Hestia. Like that's such like airy season, like spring energy, dedicate your actual spring cleaning to her. Like, I feel like she'd love that. You can also ask for her blessings when you move into a new home. And I read a few witches online that talked about praying to her when they were looking to like find a new place to live, whether they were renting or buying, which feels like so modern Hestia and appropriate. And um, one of the things that I loved about her is like the biggest themes from people that tend to work with her uh, seems to be like warmth and sweetness. Like, like vanilla. Like vanilla. She's not like a mean, scary deity. So I also feel like if you're just dipping your toe into deity work and you're interested in the Greek pantheon, like starting with Hestia might be a good way to go. Like she's a house goddess. She does everyday stuff. She's also like really chill. She's not going to like, she's not a trickster. And if you're into the Roman pantheon, of course, Vesta's her equivalent. So 
my sources today were greekmythology.com, When God Was Queer podcast, which is really great, godsandmonsters.com, theoi.com, greeksgodsandgoddesses.net, which again, sponsor us. Please sponsor sponsor us, but we will never stop shouting you out because... Because you're great. Because you're great. Uh, And then patheos.com. So yeah, so that's Hestia. Oh, I'm... Why did I forget to include this in my segment? But if you were interested in working with the Lare, the most common offering, and um, they would have like a neighborhood Lare festival, but uh, the emperor, the first emperor Augustus famously canceled it because it was too rowdy. Um, But then it came back, but then it came back. Well, because the slaves and the servants would take the day off and um, probably their only day off even. But okay, but but honey cakes, honey cakes, and why not Ooh. put a little? Why not put a little vanilla in your honey cake? And I love that. Make it, make it both, make it both. Do it. So this taroscope is for you and all of our other vestal virgins out there, if you will. So this week, our kitty cat astrology deck has decided that the Virgos need a little guidance from the cards, and I'm here to serve. So for you lovely earthy babes, this week I have drawn for you the Knight of Wands, which is actually a a funny story. So the card actually jumped out of my deck while I was shuffling. And I'm of course using the dragon deck um, as the day that I I did the tarot scope, uh, which was yesterday. Because of Aries. I'm of course, yeah, uh, is the first day of Aries season. Um, and the card literally jumping out was just huge Aries energy. So I was like, we're running with it. We're running with it. Hell yeah. So, so we got the Knight of Wands. And the Knight of Wands, also Aries energy, is all about charging into the thick of it. Um, you're feeling passionate. You're feeling motivated. Your current ideas and projects, uh, you're diving headfirst. You're diving, you're diving headfirst, in, maybe even into something new. Um, now for all of you project-driven Virgos, this must feel amazing and fulfilling, but also your instincts are right on the money here. So dive on in, babes. Uh, this is a sign of success in your endeavors, a green light, if you will, much love to you. Go for it. Woo! That's like, I love that very Aries message for Virgos who are not very Aries. Which I love. Who are not very Aries, although I'm famously both, because um, sometimes... Nick goes both ways. (laughs) Sometimes you can have it all, okay? You can have it all if you're Nicholas, baby. Um, (laughs) So I guess that's like, we're getting close to the end. We're doing our plugs at the end again, because y'all, it's been a day. It's been Um, a day. We forgot. We've been kind of uh, throwing them in the middle. Because eventually, you know, that's where that Casper mattress commercial is going to be. But yeah, HelloFresh, hit us up. Uh, but since but but since we're not doing any of that, uh, we need you guys to join our Patreon. So where can they find that, Shannon? Um, it's Patreon.com/slash/WandsandFrondsPod. But if you're not going to do that, which you should, because you get a bonus episode every month, um, you can, you know really great stuff you can get at some uh monthly tarot reading from yours truly um you know it's like really great stuff at all levels um uh, but also you get to you see know, video recordings of the you episodes get to see, really the best thing though is you get to see the video recordings Sometimes which are we, unedited unedited mostly. um so you get to see my cat 
knocking things over. Um, you get to hear me yelling at my roommate. It's great. You get to see uh, Willow's butt a lot for some reason. Yeah, She's yeah, yeah. really into showing her butt to the camera. Uh, it's kind of her thing. <laughs> She's so weird. But if you're feeling social, you could hit us up on Instagram. We do love to get pictures, especially in the Sabbaths. You know, like people will send us like, pictures of their, you know, little little Sabbath celebrations. And uh, so I, think, good. I think one time we asked for pictures of people's pets and then no one ever sent us pictures of their pets. Or uh, you know what? I think Shannon did. I think, I think. I'm sure we got a f- like a handful, but not think, nearly enough. Not nearly, we want not, more pet pictures, y'all. Yeah, 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 yeah. More, more pet pictures, y'all. I would say this week, I, what I really want to see is if you have any cool spring flowers. Uh, and, and I will send you a picture of Texas Mountain Laurel in return. I love and, that. And uh, so, so that Instagram though, very easy to remember because it's Instagram.com slash Wands and Fronds Pod. Yeah, or at Wands and Fronds Pod if you're in the app. Um, you can also email us, guys. We uh, we kept it simple for you. It's wandsandfrondspod at gmail.com. And we've been thinking, and so like, tell us, tell us if you guys think this is cool. I've been thinking it would be cool to maybe like get a little, a little Google voice number set up. Yeah. And, um, and, and t- take some questions, do some phone calls. So if you think that would be cool because you are shy and would not want to come on the show for one of the Patreon episodes, like our dear friend of the pod, Shannon did very recently and you can only check that out on Patreon. Yeah, that should be going up this week. I haven't put it together yet, but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. And um you you would feel more comfortable just asking a, a question on a voicemail. I I I think that'd be kind of cool. So hit us up and if you're not feeling social, just like, just you know, like, subscribe, rate, review. Write a review, y'all. We've got some cute little reviews on Apple Podcasts, but it really does help a lot. Like, I know every podcast you listen to says this, but it's because it's true. And it would really mean a lot to us if y'all would write a podcast review, please. I mean, I mean, like, here's a, here's a, here's a template. Here's a template. I'm going to do the work for you. I really like this podcast. Nick and Shannon are so cool, exclamation point. That's all. That's all you got to say. Yeah. I also liked uh, a previous suggestion of just, this podcast is good. This podcast is good. You don't have to do very much. You don't have to write much. Just yeah. some, something. It shows up. That way when people are Googling good podcasts. Yeah. Good yeah. podcasts. Wants and fronts. Hey. Yeah. Uh, um, so what do we say to all the bitches in the house? Uh, to all the bitches in the house, we say, blessed be you house bitches blessed be you house bitches goodbye bye now sometimes i like to pretend i'm a a mediterranean peasant for dinner